Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today we have a very exciting guest in the theme of training pro-social behavior, and it is Dr. David Sloan Wilson. He is a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the Binghamton University. He uses evolution to understand and improve the human condition, in addition to his fundamental contributions to evolutionary theory. David directs several programs that expand evolution beyond the biological sciences and higher education, public policy, uh, the Evolution Institute, and community-based research such as the Binghamton Neighbor Project. David has written uh, several books that include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Society, Evolution for Everyone, How Darwin's Theory Can Change the Way We Think About Our Lives, and The Neighborhood Project, Using Evolution to Improve My City One Block at a Time, which won Books for a Better Life Award on the Green Category 2012. You can read more about David, uh, his research, and the books that I just mentioned by clicking on his name on this week's Act, Taking Her to Hope. I want to welcome you, David. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. David, this is a very exciting um, marriage uh, between, say, evolution, theory and science, and psychology. And I saw you uh, speak at um, uh, an ACT uh, conference where you had a keynote speech. And I think many, many of us are very excited about this marriage of different these different sciences. So how did you get interested in this, this type of marriage? Well, all my career I've been interested in evolution. The question of how groups function as, as uh, uh, adaptive units, basically. Social life working well. And I've studied that as a fundamental evolutionary problem and in the biological world. And I've also been interested in applying it to human groups throughout my uh, career. So uh, this is what I've done for a long, long time. Uh, what's a little bit new is when I tried to do it in a practical sense and to mm -hmm. actually start working in real-world situations. And what, I think that the t – go ahead. What, what, what gave you that idea that you, that, uh, you could take um, evolution and, and apply it into these everyday – situations I think that I, the the uh, the potential has always been there in my mind and it was a, it was a question of how to realize it and so the idea that I might use my city as a field site mm -hmm. <laughs> as an evolutionist would understand that term yeah and that might and the, I, I might start a think tank so mm -hmm. that I could actually be applying this to, to policy in general terms uh, basically didn't materialize until 
about uh, six or seven years ago. Uh, so that was a new turn in my career, and it's been uh, very gratifying for me. It's brought me into contact with wonderful people such as uh, uh, Steve Hayes and, and other people in the ACT world. Yeah. I, I've been reading one of your articles, David, and uh, you write that evolution must be at the center for all change. What, what do you mean by that? Well, when you think of how we change as people, it's because we have certain minds, and those minds ultimately must be explained from an evolutionary perspective. And also change at the bottom is, uh, is unplanned. It's, uh, it's a variation and selection process, a term that Skinner used all the time. He said selection by consequences. And one important message is, is that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you look at individual change and cultural change, this is also, these are also evolutionary processes. So all roads lead to evolution. If you ask any important question about humans, mm-hmm. you're going to have to be studying our minds and our cultures. Mm-hmm. And, and these are uh, deeply evolutionary questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you also, when you mentioned now change and another uh, in the same article, you write that uh, change is the mantra for modern life, uh, craving positive changes on all levels, from individuals seeking to improve themselves to neighborhoods seeking a greater sense of community to nations attempting to function in better ways. So what were you thinking there? I think it helps because change is fun- at, the, at the bottom is an evolutionary process. We need to change. We don't know exactly how to change. Otherwise, that would be easy. And so what we end up doing in a number of ways is, is a variation and selection process. Uh, we do things in different ways, and then what works gets selected. B.F. Skinner, of course, based his ideas on this. So if we want to change, we need to employ evolutionary processes. Mm-hmm. And an explicit knowledge of evolution can help. This is something which has not been applied during the last few decades, but uh, but is now. That's what's exciting, basically, is that people who have thought about change without thinking explicitly about evolution are joining with people like me, who are uh, adding a more a more formal framework for thinking about change as an evolutionary process. David, could you explain a little a, a little more simply when you say that uh, you need to know about evolution if you want to um, for behavior change? I mean, what, what is it we need to know about evolution? Well, evolution. Uh, all species have a capacity for change during their lifetimes, and that is called phenotypic plasticity. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, basically, genetic evolution has endowed us with an ability to assess our environments and then to uh, behave in an appropriate way. Uh, but this is all something which has been laid down by a past process of evolution. And so that means when we encounter a new environment, for example, we don't necessarily behave appropriately. Mm-hmm. And we need to actually, we need to evolve in a sense. We need to evolve as individuals and we need to evolve as cultures in order to adapt to new environments. And this is, this is ever more true in the present than in the past mm-hmm. because, um, because there's so much change that's required based on human activities. It's like mm-hmm. a, almost like an autocatalytic process mm-hmm. is that we need to, need to change. And if we don't, then we simply behave maladaptively in ways that can be, uh, that can be tragic. Okay, let me see if I understand this, David. Um, Darwin says um, it's not the fastest, smartest species, but the the species that's able to uh, 
change, uh, adapt to the inevitable changes. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Oh, and so if we think of, if for example, um, a lot of uh, people like me work with, for example, immigrants coming from another country, or um, there, there are many, many faster changes today going on that people need. I mean, they need to adapt to, or they become marginalized in in society. Is so. When you call, talk about this plasticity, uh, so you mean that uh, uh, that we need to find some kind of variability and and finding appropriate behaviors for the changes. Is that what you mean by plasticity? That's right, and we can take and we can take some uh, immigration as a good example. Uh, it turns out that many species, including humans, are more flexible as children than as adults. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, when children immigrate, they tend to adapt quite quickly to their societies. They mm -hmm. become, they acculturate. When adults immigrate, that happens with much more difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean it's impossible, but it does mean that it needs to be assisted. Mm -hmm. And so there's one good example about the, the normal change process, which takes place on a, according to a life cycle. In the old days, when change was a much slower process, when environmental change which was a much slower process, it made sense for children to kind of soak up their culture during the first part of their life cycle and then to have their culture um, during the uh, rest of their life cycle. Now change is required for adults more than ever before. Mm -hmm. And another point to make is that some aspects of our change is not all that flexible. It's a more of an automatic response to our environment. So if you're put in a fearful situation, for example, then um, aspects of your psychology get triggered so that you behave in a cautious fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, you, withhold, you withhold your support. Basically, you act as anyone should act. In a, in a situation when your existence is, is threatened. Mm -hmm. so, that, uh, so that there's a lot that can be done in terms of environmental intervention, just for example, by providing any person with a safe and secure environment mm -hmm. will, ca will cause them to function differently than if you provide them with a, a threatening environment. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this means that there's many, many environmental interventions that can have an instantaneous effect because they're, they're, they're triggering different um, mental processes that, mm -hmm. that evolved um, uh, a long time ago and, and are essentially shared by, you know, all mammals mm -hmm. uh, as to, as to uh, how to function in the, um, uh, in the presence of uh, threatening situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. David, uh, if we try to define what, you know, what type of problems we're talking about, uh, you, you, you wrote in our, an article, what happens when change is left unmanaged and left to evolution, uh, when left unmanaged evolutionary processes can take us where we prefer not to go. What, what, what are you thinking there? Well, evolution doesn't make everything nice. Evolution explains the full spectrum of, of, of behaviors from the most pro-social to the most anti-social. Mm-hmm. The reason that we have all these different behaviors is that they're all adaptive in the evolutionary sense in some mm -hmm. situation or another. If something was maladaptive all the time, it would simply go away and we wouldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a big difference between something that just because something evolves doesn't make it right or good or anything that we might want. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is we need to be smart enough to know when pro-social behaviors, the behaviors we would like to see, 
how can we create environments so that they can win those behaviors can win the Darwinian mm-hmm. contest? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so we actually know the ingredients pretty well of how how to stack the deck in mm-hmm. favor of pro-social behaviors and and let those be the outcomes of the evolutionary process. But if we don't do that, then evolution takes us where we don't want to uh, go. And, and that's exactly what you've done in the, your in your neighborhood project. So let's move on. And, and I think the listeners are going to be very interested to hear about uh, what what exactly did you do when with this uh, project, the neighborhood project? Well, one uh, the neighborhood project is basically um, me using my hometown as a kind of a laboratory or actually a field site for studying. Uh, human uh, behavior from an evolutionary perspective mm-hmm. with an eye to improving it and not just understanding it. Mm-hmm. So we have all sorts of groups. We have neighborhood groups and school groups. We work with the city government. Uh, the wonderful thing about evolution is is that it could be used to study all problems. As an evolutionary biologist, I study all traits of all species from the same perspective. And as a policy tool, this means that I can study any problem, any sizable problem, using the same theoretical framework. And this all by itself is new, because as you know, if you're a practicing uh, um, psychologist, that how siloed these things become. Mm -hmm. Every problem becomes an isolated community. Mm -hmm. And so all by itself, we're doing something new here when we're we're addressing all problems from an evolutionary um, perspective. And so we take these problems one by one and we just sit down at the table with other folks uh, that are uh, employing other perspectives and we see if there might be some added value to studying these from an evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. Now to make this concrete, let's just pick education. Mm -hmm. And um, education, of course we have a formal system of education, but if you look back at our ancestors, for example, hunter-gatherer societies and many traditional cultures, what you find is is that there is very little that resembles formal education. Mm-hmm. Adults do not teach children, and that sounds so amazing. Mm-hmm. And these cultures have much to teach. If you if you if you're an anthropologist and you study any culture in detail, you know uh, just the uh, amazing amount of information and skills that actually must be passed down the generations. How does this happen without any formal, without much formal mm-hmm. instruction? Mm-hmm. But there's a spontaneous process whereby children run around in mixed age groups um, and the uh, younger children learn from the older children. The older children want to be adults. Mm-hmm. And most of this takes place in the context of practice and play. Mm-hmm. And what this suggests is that our formal system of education somewhere along the line might have gone terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is it that we segregate children by age, for example, so that if you're a 14-year-old, you only interact with other Mm 14-year-olds. It turns out that this is a a social arrangement which favors competition Mm -hmm. and social striving, whereas if you were a 14-year-old interacting with 18-year-olds and Mm 8-year-olds, you would be behaving in a very different way than if you were just interacting with people in your age group. Mm-hmm. And this is just the tip of an iceberg of things that we're doing today that we don't question, mm-hmm. but that you end up questioning when you when you when you set a broader stage, basically, and you look about 
when you think of education as the transmission of knowledge across the generations, and you see how this has been done in the um, in the um, in the past. So there's a um, I'll keep it brief, but this mm -hmm. is uh, one example of how evolution can can uh, cause you to think about things in a way that people, smart people, studying an important problem, um, have not been thinking about it. Mm -hmm. How exciting, David. Well, so, um, okay, so this was uh, one example. When you did the, actually did the neighborhood project, um, when I listened to you uh, do your keynote address, you, you were talking about this example from chickens. Can, can you explain that? Yes, I'd love to explain that. I love the chicken example. And what the chicken example does is it, it, it illustrates, I think, one of the most important um, concepts from evolution, which is called multi-level selection. And first, let me give the concept in general terms, and then the yeah. chickens, and then a school. How's that yeah, for Yeah, that, that would be perfect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, basically, there's two ways to succeed if you're a member of a group. You can succeed at the expense of other members of your group. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we call that selfishness. Mm -hmm. Or you could ex you could succeed by basically being a good team player and uh, in coordination so that the whole group succeeds, including yourself. So these are two pathways to success. And of course, they trade off against each other because what you need to do to succeed by one pathway is different than what you need to succeed by another pathway. And so, and this is also exists at all social scales. So the way I put it is like, what's good for me is not necessarily good for my family. What's good for my family is not necessarily good for my clan. What's good for my clan is not necessarily good for my nation. What's good for my nation is not necessarily good for the global village. Mm -hmm. What's good for a corporation is not necessarily good for the global economy. You get the point, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in biology, this actually has... Um, Bears upon breeding practices. You know, how do we how do we domesticate our our plants and animals? And so chickens are a group living species, and nowadays they're put in cages. So mm -hmm. in a poultry farm, there are many cages of chickens, mm -hmm. and uh, and so we're trying to maximize egg production. And let's do it in two ways. First thing we can do is we can monitor the egg laying of all the hens, and we can select the most productive hen within every cage. The second thing we can do is we could monitor the productivity of the cages and we can select all of the hens in the most productive cages. And these might seem to be uh, very similar, maybe producing the same result, but that's not what happens. Mm -hmm. What happens is when you select the most productive hen within each cage, you're selecting the meanest, most aggressive hen <laughs> in the cage, the biggest bully and and you select those traits, and in only a few generations, because these are highly heritable traits, in only a few generations, you you bred a nation of psychopaths, <laughs> and they're they're murdering each other, they're plucking each other's feathers, and and of course their egg productivity goes down. Mm -hmm. If you if you select the most productive cages, then you're selecting the most cooperative uh, hens, and so you end up with mild mannered. Uh, hens that don't harm each other, and they all just lay eggs um, uh, together. So this is the difference between selecting at the group level and selecting at the um, individual level. Now, what this means for a human group is that, including a school group, is that you can structure a group 
so that it's easily exploited, so that individuals can easily exploit others within the same group, or you can put things in which makes it difficult. You can basically shut down um, the opportunities for uh, free riding and exploitation. And when you do that, then, uh, then the group functions very well as a unit. And we've uh, done this in one of our uh, schools for at-risk students. We basically created a social environment that made it easy to be pro-social, made, made pro-social be the, the, uh, the uh, most successful trade. What, David, what do you mean by uh, when you, behaviors of exploitation versus a pro-social? What, what types of behaviors would that be? Well, we all know these behaviors. Just think of yourself within a group and think of the different ways in which you can be um, disadvantaged within that group. Uh, we begin with free riding. Basically, if we all have to do things together and you don't do your share, mm-hmm. then that's, um, that's uh, good for you as someone who didn't have to do the work, but, uh, but bad for the, for the uh, group. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's all manner of, uh, of, um, of taking basically, so that in any transaction, uh, when you do something on behalf of the group, you're making yourself vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, to other people who either you uh, get the benefits of your labor without the cost, or actively exploit you in, in, in some ways. You know, take your money, mm-hmm. steal, your, steal your boyfriend, mm-hmm. <laughs> when mm-hmm. it, the list goes on. Um, on and on. So uh, we're all familiar with this because it's something that we encounter on a daily level. Is how can I, how can I be a nice person, and um, and uh, participate in the work of modern society um, without being disadvantaged in the in the process. David, if we uh, go from the chickens to the school, so you're saying that um, so. High achieving and low achievers, um, which is the way we—I don't know—at least in Sweden and Scandinavian Europe and and the United States, we we completely segregate um, children quite at an early age uh, into high and low achievers. And what you're saying is that um, by putting them together as a group, you the group does better than if you separate them. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think you're ask, actually asking two questions there. In the first place, let's just think about people in the normal range. Let's not separate them for the moment into high and low mm-hmm. achievers. Yeah. Just an average, you know, village of kids. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, and this is based on the work of Peter Gray, a wonderful man who's uh, quite a visionary on these things, is that uh, you should be facilitating mixed-age interactions. And a lot of free play. Don't micromanage what they do. Formal instruction is overrated. Okay. Uh, there are actually schools in the United States that, that, that are radical in this respect. They have no formal classroom uh, activities at all. What they have is a normative structure so that you can't bully, you can't be mean, you can't, t- you can't take drugs to school, things like that. So there's a very strong normative structure, which prevents people from harming each other. Mm-hmm. But within that, so that provides a protective environment. And then other than that, kids can do whatever they want, mm-hmm. whatever they want. And the adults are there to assist. Mm-hmm. And do you know that that actually works well as an uh-huh. educational is, is system? That, is, do you have an example? Of what, is that like the Waldorf School or what, what would they be well, called? It's, called? it's called the Sudbury Valley School. Mm-hmm. And Peter Gray 
is the person who is passionate about this. He sent his son there mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, has researched basically how well it does as a school. So there's good studies mm -hmm. tracking the alumni of this school Mm -hmm. showing that even in a modern environment where there's many technical things to learn, you know, we have to learn math and stuff like mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that actually children do just in the pursuit of what they um, um, want to want to do it. And they do it with a great deal of joy. And it's an inexpensive form of education. It's less expensive. It's not like an elite boarding school. Mm -hmm. This is a win-win uh, uh, situation because it provides these very simple ingredients. Now, if you have a lot of variation, and so you have some very gifted children and some very um, um, underperforming children, there's two questions that you need to ask. Mm -hmm. Is it proper to mix them? Mm -hmm. And is it proper for everyone involved? Would the, would, the, would the lower end benefit, would the higher end benefit? And these are complicated questions. I don't want to make it sound that there's a simple answer. A second question is, what's accounting for the underperforming uh, children? Why are they doing so poorly? And is this something which is just innate? Were they just born on the bottom end of the bell curve and nothing can be done? Mm -hmm. Or is there some sense in which you can take people that are underperforming and you can basically light them up and you can cause them to do very well mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, um, if you know what to do? And I think that there's uh, quite a bit of potential for that. Of course, there's some children that are just uh, mentally damaged in, in various ways. It might be um, fetal alcohol syndrome, and th these are tragic situations where, mm -hmm. where people are, some people get dealt a very bad hand of genes, and, and, mm -hmm. and their minds don't work very mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I'm not trying to um, portray the problem as, as too simple, but there's much that can be done, and, uh, and uh, part of it has to do with creating safe and secure environments, Building in design principles so that it's, so that people feel that they're not going to be abused in 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 any ways. This, for example, includes such things as decision making. Mm -hmm. If a group is going to make a decision, how should they do it? And and in general, um, arbitrary decision making, decisions that are made by some members of the group without consulting with others or without really attending to their needs, is toxic for a group because if you're in a group. And somebody's like your boss is just make basically telling you what to do, and you have no say in the matter. Mm -hmm. Then that is something that the human mind rebels um, uh, against. We hate those groups. We, mm -hmm. we we leave we leave them when we can, mm -hmm. and yet that's what school is for many people. Yeah, where children don't have any say. Now, that's not democratic. And if you think that if you think that. It can't be democratic because the children are too young, and at the same time you're teaching them civic lessons. Mm -hmm. Then this is just not making much sense, is it? No. So uh, part of this is is that um, is that human people are very egalitarian. Whenever you put people in small groups, they they kind of insist on being a group of equals, mm -hmm. and they resist being um, uh, pushed around for for the for the obvious reasons that this is 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 uh, this group is not going to work for them. Mm -hmm. Now, now we live in very large-scale societies, which must have structure, and that structure is often hierarchical. So this leads to situations in which people are in groups in which they're not egalitarian. Yeah. And a lot of dissent. So anything that you can do to make groups more egalitarian 
and also to let things happen in small groups because small groups are the natural human social mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Large groups are unnatural in a sense. And unless you structure them in a very special way with new cultural inventions, mm-hmm. they're not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the insights of Eleanor Ostrom, a person who I've been influenced by very much, who mm-hmm. uh, won the Nobel Prize in 2009, basically by showing how small groups are efficacious, and I had the privilege of working with for several years before her death, yeah. is that is that uh, small groups are, if if they have the right in, ingredients, are the, are the best groups for managing their own affairs. And so we need to to um, to increase the 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 presence of small groups and to and to. Uh, I, I sometimes call it multicellular society. You're a big organism that consists of many cells, mm-hmm. and and you couldn't exist without your cells. And large-scale society needs cells, and those cells are small groups. Large-scale society should be composed of small groups, much more so than than currently the case. So that's one of the broad-scale recommendations for governance: is that we should tr- strive to create. A multicellular society, and of course, those groups must communicate with each other, as mm-hmm. they do in your as they do in your body. David, um, could you briefly tell us? We did have Kevin Polk on this program telling us, uh, um, who briefly went through uh, the Ostrom's Elnor Ostrom's eight principles of groups. Um, could you tell us that the most important of her principles and how you applied them? I can flash through them. They're very intuitive, so even flashing through them is uh, in some ways good enough. But then I want to concentrate on the first one, because it's the first one that intersects with ACT and other forms of therapy. And so the first one is that a group needs to have a strong identity and sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. You need to know that you're a group. You need to actually feel good about your group, and you need to know what you're doing as a group. Mm -hmm. And this is where ACT comes in, as I'll return to. Uh, the next thing is, uh, number two is uh, proportional costs and benefits, as we've been talking about. it. Cannot, it's not sustainable for some people to do all the work and for other people to get the benefits. So you have to make it so either you share the work or if someone does more, more than their share, then they get, then they get recognized mm-hmm. for it. That's very, <clears throat> that's very simple. <clears throat> the third is consensus decision making, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The fourth is monitoring. So if we agree upon doing something and somebody doesn't do it, it, it must be detected because otherwise you've just left open a temptation to uh, free ride or to or to uh, or cheat. to slack mm-hmm. or to cheat. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, most people are willing and actually eager to be solid citizens. Mm-hmm. But if there's opportunities for for um, cheating, then, you know, sometimes we succumb to the mm-hmm. Temptation, especially if we're very busy, and even though we want to do it, we get pulled away by other mm-hmm. things. And so you have to put in this kind of structure. Uh, the the uh, uh, fourth or fifth, I'm losing count, is uh, is uh, graduated sanction. So if somebody does misbehave, then the first thing you should do is just a gentle, friendly reminder. Mm-hmm. And that works in most cases, but in some cases it doesn't. And in some cases you end up with real psychopaths in your group. Mm-hmm. Real predators that are just basically, they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have an escalation capacity and ultimately a capacity of exclusion. 
-hmm. Religions do this very, very well. And that's one reason why I study religions and I admire religions is Mm -hmm. because they exemplify these design principles. Mm -hmm. The six is conflict resolution because conflicts will will occur Mm -hmm. and they need to be, they can't fester. They need to be resolved in a fast fashion and in a fair fashion, in a way that's recognized as fair by all parties. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a traditional society, this typically happens by a council of respected people, respected elders, who everyone has to agree. You are you are a um, highly respected, fair-minded person. Therefore, you get to, to you get to resolve this conflict, mm-hmm. and then we we will abide by uh, by that. Sort of like it, Nelson Mandela's tribe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. And as you look at these things that are happening in modern times and you look at uh, truth and re- reconciliation processes uh, is a great example of, of trying to get this going at a large scale, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what takes place more or less naturally at a small scale. Mm-hmm. Number seven is uh, autonomy. Basically, the group has to have the authority to manage its own affairs. And if mm-hmm. they don't, then all bets are off. Mm-hmm. And then number eight is appropriate relations among other groups. So the groups in a multi-group society, you have to basically hook them up, more or less using the same principles that, 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 that apply to individuals within groups. So there you have it, eight principles. They make perfect sense. And yet if you look at groups of all sorts, you see that in many, some do it, some, some basically converge upon these principles and they work well. Mm-hmm. Others don't. And they work poorly. And so we have tremendous latitude for improving the efficacy of groups based on these principles plus um, auxiliary principles, because these are only necessary and not sufficient. A group, depending upon what its specific uh, agenda is, must do many other things than the core design principles. But if they don't have the core design principles, they're probably in trouble. Mm-hmm. So we have, a, we have a powerful set of, of uh, uh, tools here for uh, improving the efficacy of groups. And and let me return to the first one now, which is uh, your identity as a group and a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. That is where ACT training comes in. And ACT is typically applied at the individual level, mm-hmm. where you get an individual to think about their true goals in life, what they really want to do, as opposed to um, their more narrow concern with their with their problems, and so it, and then it tries to increase their flexibility. So this immediately can be seen as evolutionary in the sense that you increase your repertoire of behaviors, that's variation, Mm -hmm. and then you mindfully select the behaviors that you want to move forward to a better life. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that is act in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And it is what Kevin Polk has done uh, very ingeniously with his matrix method mm-hmm. in which he can walk people through this process of, of asking them, you know, what their true values are, what that would actually mean in terms of acting, what they would actually do, what gets in the way, what's the mental stuff that gets in the way, mm-hmm. and what does that mental stuff cause them to do that takes them away from their valued goals as, as opposed to towards their valued goals. That's, that's act therapy in a nutshell. And what, uh, and what uh, Kevin has has packaged mm-hmm. in a very kind of a quick delivery in yeah. the form of in the form of the matrix. That's and true. so 
And so what we're doing, did I do a good job of explaining it? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. A very good job. I was just thinking of, um, and also in addition, uh, using values is the idea of um, the pro-social long-term uh, rather than my individual, what's good for me in the short term. Uh, the values is almost, it's always about this more long-term, uh, which is often good for the collective. That's right. I mean, it's, it would be unusual. It would be, it would be theoretically possible but unusual for an act therapist to sit down with a client and have that client go through the process and to really want for their long-term goal some very selfish right, <laughs> right. yeah that's goal. that's yeah for sure uh, david we're getting to that we've gotten to the, actually the end of the program um i was just curious about uh two things one um how do people react to you when you talk like this is this is so revolutionary when it comes to education and uh, how does the American educational system react to, to this? Well, it's it's very different, and so you get that kind of opposition. Is that uh, it's a it's a different paradigm, basically. And the concept of a paradigm, it's a system of thought, which is uh, useful, of course, but also inflexible. It, it just you can't escape it. And this is very much a matter of paradigmatic change. Is that you have to switch from one system of thought to another system of thought. When you do that, then the new paradigm has all kinds of possibilities that were invisible according to the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. And by definition, getting people to change paradigms is not easy, mm -hmm. um, although it can be. Mm -hmm. And you actually need to find a path. And I often talk about this now in terms of exchanging lenses. Mm -hmm. A lens, that's another metaphor, basically, is when you a lens kind of governs and colors what you see. Mm -hmm. And so with one lens, certain things become... You just don't see them at all, or they become, or they, or they seem extremely unlikely to uh, to happen. But by exchanging lenses, all of a sudden things make sense, and you see different things. And the the difference between the lens metaphor and the paradigm metaphor is that it's, it's hard to switch paradigms, mm -hmm. but it's easy, but it's easy to switch lenses. Yeah. Just imagine, just imagine taking off one pair of eyeglasses and putting on another. Mm -hmm. And actually, it, it can be that easy because this whole evolutionary way of thinking becomes highly intuitive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like riding a bike, basically. You wobble at first, but then, then once you learn how to do it, it's second nature. Yeah. And I think for anyone who makes that transition, then they just see a world of new possibilities, and they're very, very excited to get going. Yeah. So do you see um, uh, this research, and when, if, if uh, I mean, what has the reaction when people are curious and from the educational system, or are they threatened by this? There is, uh, for, for education, there, uh, uh, it's still a tiny movement, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of resistance because the whole educational system is going in another way, in a very yeah. tragic way. Yeah. All, with all testing and formal education, they say, basically, if it's not working, we need to do more of the same. Yeah. So yeah. we need to have longer school days, cut down on summer vacation, and it's just like, it's a real tragedy in the making, yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We need to assess teachers on in ways that are just not at all the right things to assess. It's a, it's a tragedy in the yeah. making, and I'm, yeah. and I'm in the middle of it. But if we switch to the therapeutic world, we see something else based on the enthusiasm of people like Steve Hayes and Kevin Polk, uh, Joe Sirochi, um, uh, basically joining with folks like me and right away working on a framework that's going to be applying this to real-world groups and and doing this very fast. So we're currently getting a team of almost 20 or 30 uh, expert coordinators who have groups that they're working with 
to formalize our methods, our training methods, our assessment methods, something that uh, uh, ACT researchers do very, very well. And, and, so, and to develop a, a practical framework for improving the efficacy of groups and making it available to a large number of groups uh, through an internet platform and through a worldwide network of coaches provided by the uh, um, Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, of which it consists of over 6,000 members. So this is something which is in real implementation mode. We don't have to convince anyone. Yeah. We're all on board here. We're all, we're all, we've all put on the same lens. Yeah, and now we're and now we're working to so that's that's a much more optimistic scenario than the world of education, and we can hope that other and there's also other worlds the business world, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the economic world, mm -hmm. everyone needs this. So so uh, I think in cultural evolutionary terms, it's actually happening quite fast. Thank you so much for being on the program with me today, David. Thank you. You've been listening to a very exciting illustration of how to use evolution in within psychology and, and education and many other applications. Uh, if you'd like to um, contact David, uh, remember that David Sloan Wilson, he is a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the Binghamton University. He uses evolution to understand and improve the human condition in addition to his fundamental contributions to evolutionary theory. He directs several programs that expand evolution beyond biological sciences in higher education, public policy, and community-based research. Uh, look at take a look at his books. Uh, I actually saw they're all on, mostly all on Amazon.com. Otherwise, you can click on his, his uh, name on this week's Act Taking Here to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.